when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. They came to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and, for the, Holy, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the, the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a word will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who, was now, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Almighty God, You have poured upon us the new light of Your incarnate Word. Grant that this light, enkindled in our hearts, may shine forth in your name in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. There is a difference between Advent and Christmas. Advent is the season that comes before Christmas Day. It's a season of four Sundays, and sometimes those Sundays turn into four full weeks, and sometimes they are three full weeks and one partial week. But however it works out, Advent is four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And it's a season that is kind of peculiar in the church calendar because it's the beginning of the church year. It is that first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday following Thanksgiving Day. Is, is the first day of the Christian New Year. And the interesting thing about the season of Advent is we begin our year by proclaiming that Christ will come again. We begin with four weeks where we declare that the world is going to be put back together because Christ will come again. And so we begin our, our Christian year looking forward to the future, looking forward to future events, looking forward to the day when Christ will come and will make all things new, as the book of Revelation says it. But Advent is not Christmas. 
Christmas is, of course, December the 25th. And that dating is not based upon a Roman sun god or anything of that nature. It's, it's dated according to uh, some ancient uh, uh, dating principles for figuring out the birthdays of prophets. But Christmas is a day, December the 25th, but it's a day followed by a period of days. Christmas is also a season. Now, most of us, when we refer to the Christmas season, we refer to the build-up to Christmas. We're referring to all the shopping and all the hecticness. We're, we're talking about the debt, and we're talking about all those things that we typically associate with Christmas, the fast-paced nature of our lives before Christmas Day. But the Christmas season is actually what the kids sang about last week in their, in their Christmas program, the 12 days of Christmas. Those are the days that begin on Christmas Day and follow on through January the 5th, and then give way to Epiphany, which is January the 6th. And so that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, where we hear of all those gifts, uh, you'll probably remember if today is the third day of Christmas, then the gift that we receive is the three French hens. Now, show of hands, who, who remembered that? Three French hens. All right. Yesterday, we would have received two turtle doves, and on Christmas Day, we would have received the partridge in a pear tree. A dove, a symbol of peace in a wooden structure. So this being the third day of Christmas, this being the the first Sunday after Christmas Day, begs the question, well, what difference does any of this make? What, What difference does Christmas make? You might be hearing, if you think about the fact that we're just now starting the Christmas season, you might be hearing in your mind the voice of Karen Carpenter singing, We've Only Just Begun. Because indeed, we have only just begun this season. But before we look at why Christmas matters, I want to look first at a couple of other things that are related to this, that will shed light on why Christmas matters. And the first is this. It's related to how he came. Now, on Christmas Eve, we had several folks, I think 21 folks gathered in our home uh, to, to light candles, to sing carols, and we had a joyous time together as we read from the scriptures and received communion together. But I mentioned to the, to the, the crowd that gathered that, that he came, and as he came, he made himself humble and tangible and shareable as we were thinking about the announcement of the angels to, to the shepherds out in their fields. But this morning, when we think about how he came, I want to highlight just a couple of aspects of how he came. And the first is this. He came tangibly. He came tangibly. He came in a way that could be touched and, and, and felt and seen. And we read a couple of odd stories here in Luke's second chapter. We read the story of Simeon and we read the story of Anna. And those stories come on the heels of another very odd story. And that is that at eight days, he he was taken to be circumcised. Indeed, he did come tangibly. God came in a way that he could be seen. As Mary reached the end of her days of purification, she and Joseph took Jesus into the temple to present him before the Lord. He came tangibly. He came so that he could be seen. He came so that God could be touched. 
And you'll remember, if you fast forward in your minds through the liturgical calendar, you'll remember that on Easter, and not just the, the Easter Sunday, but the Sunday that followed Easter Sunday, as the disciples had gathered and Thomas had, had, had forcibly stated his doubt, I will not believe because the dead don't rise. We've never seen it happen. No man has ever come out of a tomb. You forget about Lazarus, Thomas. But he said, unless my, my eyes see and my hands touch his wounds, unless I can put my finger in the side where the spear entered between his ribs, I will not believe it. And you remember how Jesus presented himself to Thomas. He said, come, look, see, touch. Here, feel my wounds. Take your finger and place it right here. God comes to us tangibly. He comes to us in a way that, our, that is not necessarily bound by our senses. He comes to us in other ways as well. But he, he comes to us in a way that He makes Himself available to our senses. He, ca- he came tangibly. And He came personally. And this is of, of saving importance. He came personally. Notice what what is said about his circumcision. He is given the name Jesus according to the prescription of the angel before he was even conceived in Mary's womb. You shall call his name Jesus. Now there's something about names in the scriptures. There's something about names in all of life. In fact, when... when, uh, my kids meet a new friend, I always ask them, they would probably tell you, the first question I'm going to ask them is, oh, well, what was his name? Or what was her name? They have a neighbor that moved in just two doors up the road. She'll soon be a a neighbor to Annabelle and our kids, and and, uh, they purchased that home, and they're getting it ready. And she and her family were over just a few days ago, and she was roaming around the neighborhood playing, and she had a puppy. And, and uh, of course, I asked my kids, well, what was her name? And they said, oh, we've got a new friend. We've got a new friend. What was her name? I don't remember. Well, did you at least give her your name? Yes, but I don't remember her name. And about five minutes later, they said, oh, and she had a puppy, and his name was this. And I said, you remember the dog's name, but did you remember her name? You know, names are, are connected to our personhood. They, they bear our identity. When I think Michael Lamb, I immediately think of a face, and I think of memories, and I think of, of inside jokes, and I think of all sorts of stuff. When you think of a name, you think of a person's identity. And in the scriptures, names were, were picked according to a person's character or according to a person's destiny, what you hoped for this child or what you noticed early on in this child. You know, typically when we pick names for our, children's, for our children, we try to come up with significant names, whether they have family significance or whether they're a junior or a third or the eighth. Hopefully you don't name your kid, hopefully your name's not Henry and you're not the seventh and naming your kid Henry the eighth. But, you know, we, we pick names on purpose. They could just be names that we like, names of a favorite band or names of a, a character in a, in, a, in a book. But we pick names that we think are going to be fitting for that child. And in the Old Testament, when you speak of a name, you speak of a person's character or a person's nature. Jacob, the heel grabber. 
the second born of two twin boys who was holding on, trying to beat out his, his older brother. And all throughout his life, he's characterized as the heel grabber, the one who will supplant others, the one who will be mischievous and, and manipulative. But he's given a new name, Israel. Jesus, God's Messiah, is given the name Jesus, and that name is very telling because that name tells us not just of how he came in that he came tangibly and personally, but it tells us of why he came. Jesus, literally Yahweh saves or Yahweh delivers. Why did he come to save? Or why did he come? He came to save. He came to rescue his people. He came to rescue Israel. And he came, as Simeon says here, he came as a light to the Gentiles. Simeon knew his Old Testament. He knew that the Messiah was coming not just to be some national hero, but he was coming to shed light into the dark corners of the earth. He was coming to be a light in the midst of darkness. He was coming for the entire world. He came to put the world back together, to rescue it, to save it, to deliver it. And these, these stories of Simeon and Anna tell us of two people, two godly, godly people who recognized Christ at His coming. They recognized Him as the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to redeem. Both of them were older. Both of them filled with wisdom. But both of them also apparently filled with the Holy Spirit. And they meet. Simeon doesn't leave the temple. And, 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 and uh, Anna comes in as he's pronouncing that, Thank you, Lord. Finally, your redemption has come. And I can depart. He came to save and in speaking of Him coming to save, we must always remember that He came to save completely. Amen. To save entirely. To save wholly. The Scriptures speak of Him bringing judgment. And typically when we think judgment, we think, uh-oh. Somebody's getting fried. But judgment, in, in, in an Old Testament context, in the Hebrew mind, judgment meant putting things back into order. Judgment was about restoration. When you think of the judges in the Old Testament, you shouldn't think of grown men running around with powdered white wigs and black robes. You should think of... They were... They were superheroes. And they were pretty good at what they did in, in, in killing folks and putting order back together. They were sent to come and to rescue and to return life in covenant with Yahweh as it ought to be. But when the Scriptures speak of Christ coming, they speak of Him coming in judgment. And they speak also of peace on earth. A very typical theme as we sing songs and hymns and listen to, to carols on the radio uh, during the Christmas season, we, we hear of, of peace on earth. 
Both of these ideas of peace and judgment are about God coming to save completely. Not just to snatch a few individuals out of a bad spot. But, but coming to save completely that which has been broken and that which has been lost. Advent being the season before Christmas is a time where we, where we look to His coming back to put the world back together. And in the life of being disciples of Jesus, in this life of discipleship, He calls us to Himself and He seeks to put our lives back together. A rescued life, a saved soul, is a foretaste of what is to come when Christ, the world's Redeemer, will make all things new. And so in our lives, as He calls us to Himself, as He comes and He makes Himself tangibly present to us, as He comes and He makes Himself personally available, He doesn't just decree from heaven, but He comes Himself. He comes offering salvation. He comes offering life being put back together. And he won't stop until the job is done. We ought to praise God for that. He will not stop until the job is done because he who came to save came to save completely. If we're not careful, we will forget, we run the risk of missing the parts that he calls us to play in bringing His redemption to others. He gives us work to do. He comes. He makes Himself available to us. He comes and, he's, and He offers salvation. And He comes and He offers us the opportunity to take part in His great campaign of saving the world. And so if this is how he came and why he came, we ought to finally get down to the question of what difference does Christmas make? Well, our Christmas makes quite a bit of difference. Christmas tells us that our salvation has come and is offered freely to us and should be shared with others freely. As I mentioned in our living room on Christmas Eve night, God made Himself shareable. And our lives are to be directed toward the lives of others so that we might offer to them freely the new life that is offered to us in Jesus. Our salvation has indeed come. It is offered to us freely. And we are to be part of taking that life, taking the gospel of Christ, the good news that God's rescue has come and pronouncing it to others. And that might be an intimidating feat for us. But typically the pronouncement of that good news begins best in a small way. Going back to our normal life, as did the shepherds. 
The text tells us that Anna, once she had seen the Messiah presented in the temple, came out and began telling everyone what she had seen, that He has indeed come. And if salvation has come and is offered freely to us and should be shared with others freely by us, then the difference Christmas makes also is that our lives ought to be lived accordingly. Our lives ought to be lived with a certain pattern, a certain rhythm of living. I don't know about you, but anytime I've had to miss church on Sunday mornings, I've always just felt like the week wasn't quite normal. The few times that I've been out of town in, in the last few years on Sunday morning, I guess just a couple of times, the even though I've been at church elsewhere, you know, out of state or whatever, it still just feels like a different week because I'm not around you all. But our lives being patterned or being lived accordingly is not just about you being in here on Sunday mornings. I want you in here on Sunday mornings. I think it's safe to say that God wants you in here on Sunday mornings. But it, it is about the whole totality of our lives. If, if He came to save and His salvation was to be complete in our lives and complete for the world, then our lives ought to completely be lived according to the difference that Christmas makes. Because all of time is to be redeemed. If you think about it, 2,000 years later, we still date our calendars according to the birth of one man. That's wild. That means anytime you fill out a check, when you write that date in a subtle way and in a way that you probably don't even think about and certainly in a way that the majority of the world thinks is completely ludicrous, when you write the 27th of, is 27, the 27th of December 2015, you are declaring 2015 years of Jesus' Lordship. The dating of our calendar, the celebration of a new year as we enter in to a new year. It's, it's funny how the church's calendar moves along with the world's calendar, but it's always slightly out of step with it. But as we look forward in the days to come to count down the beginning of a, of a new calendar year, we begin thinking about the ways that we can reorder our lives. And we begin thinking about ways, resolutions that we can make. Uh, perhaps that we can type up and print out and give ourselves a nice daily reminder. But we begin thinking about those things that we would like to resolve about the year to come. And now is a perfect opportunity for us to take, to take inventory of our lives lived in Christ. If we proclaim that He has indeed come... And we proclaim that He came tangibly and He came personally. And therefore, we ought to also make ourselves tangibly and personally available to others. 
in the sharing of the gospel. And if we claim that He came to save and to save completely, and we claim that He is going to make all things new, then as we take inventory of our lives, we take stock of those things that we're putting into our lives, and we take stock of the ways that we are spending our lives, we ought to be influenced by that total call to salvation. Holy days matter. It's so easy to spit out the word holiday and to think it's just a, an important date that's circled on a calendar. But we ought to be reminded that these are holy days. These are days that are set aside, that are sanctified, that are, that are blessed by God for particular purposes. Holy seasons matter. Holy places matter. This may not look like much of a sanctuary, but we consider this our sanctuary, our holy place. Jesus was taken into the temple to be presented to the Lord. He was taken to, to, to be presented in a holy place. Our homes ought to be holy places. Places where life isn't lived like life is lived in the rest of the world. Doesn't mean we have to be a bunch of weird, out of touch nuts. Sometimes it might mean that we need to be weird, out of touch nuts. But our lives ought to be lived according to what Christmas reveals to us about the heart of God and how He came to redeem us. Because God is making us into holy people. He's making us into people whose lives can be lived like Simeon's and Anna's. He's making us into people who can live triumphantly and victoriously. Not just for our sakes, not just so that we can live an unstained life, but so that we can proclaim the good news to others. So that we can make known to the world even the Gentiles, those outsiders, those people that aren't like us, those people that aren't religious like us, those people who, who don't have the same background as we do, so that we can proclaim that light that has come to us as the light of the whole world. And He has indeed come. He has come tangibly. He has come personally. He has come to save Let us live in a way that honors His birth. Let us live in a way that honors and proclaims the good news of His coming. Let's pray.